If you have a Bible this, this morning, I encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. There should be a table of contents in the front of that if you're not familiar with it. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If uh, you've come and are just kind of checking out Christianity, there's a little bookshelf in our foyer that has Bibles and other Christian resources back there. Take a look at that and just take anything that's of interest with, to you. We're just really glad that you are with us this morning. So let me ask you a question uh, before I start. What ingredients in your mind make up a good life? Or to put it in Christianese, a blessed life. How would you finish the sentence, if I only had blank, then I would be happy or fortunate? What type of people typically have the ability to make those kind of things happen in their lives? Who in our culture get to live large, if you want to put it, in that way? Who are the people whose Instagram pics are amazing and whose Facebook pages have millions of followers? Who are those people? Generally, they are the wealthy, the beautiful, the powerful, the achievers, those that have climbed a step or two or a hundred up the social ladder, right? And we live in a culture where we encourage that kind of rise, right? Written into the very fabric of our nation is our right to pursue happiness. The problem is happiness is kind of an elusive prey. We pursue it and it seems to often vanish before us. Uh, we were watching uh, a documentary on Coldplay uh, the other night, and uh, it's one of those iconic bands that probably for the previous generation was the band, my generation, it was U2, and, you know, just kind of chronicled their lives, and you just, you know, some of the scenes, they're doing these amazing concerts that, you know, are all over the world with probably 100,000 people there, and Chris Martin's in front of everybody and singing, and everybody in unison is jumping up and down and, and singing his songs, and you're like, wow, that's just got to be an amazing feeling. And then they got into it a little bit later, and then one of the managers of the band said that there was a season where he just was calling Chris every morning just hoping that he got up that morning and hadn't killed himself the night before. And you look at that and you see, wow, this, you know, this is amazing what these people, you know, I love their early stuff, not so much their later stuff, but anyhow, this is an amazing, amazing achievement, such creativity, and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't even know if, life is worth living and those are the people that our culture would say man these are the people at the top you know if you're a musician it's like wow if you could only be this then it's golden man everything is perfect in your life and we think that way and I don't think people have changed that much since the time of Jesus and they probably thought that way as well they weren't iconic Jewish bands that would fill stadiums in that time but there were those in the society that were recognized as these people have arrived. It was usually the wealthy or the religious elite, those that had, had power and, and the ability to have servants. and all. Those were the people that, that must be blessed by God or must be favored by God. And it's into that kind of mindset that, that Jesus comes and he kind of turns everything upside down. 
He inverts things. When I show you a picture, um, my wife and I lived in Boise, Idaho for a while. It was one of our favorite cities. And uh, this is a picture of Boise, and it's not one that usually they put in the, you know, tourism brochures and stuff like that. Boise is situated between uh, two mountain ranges and uh, the valley. It's called Treasure Valley. When we moved out there, it was about 150,000. Now it's about 450,000. So I think all the beauty of Boise may have drained away with all the Californians and Seattleans coming in. But anyhow, that's a different story. But the, the reality is in the winter, this thing called the inversion can happen. And that's where in the valley, and you're looking down at the city in Boise, and uh, in the valley, it gets really cold sometimes. And if you don't have a front that moves through, this thing called the inversion sets in where the cold air just sits down there and it just stagnates. So for weeks on end, you're kind of in this soup of emissions and wood smoke and all that that just sits in the valley and you hope and pray that a front will move through and kind of blow this all out. But if you're living in this inversion, one of the things that you can do, and one of the reasons I loved Boise, was there was this little ski place, not so little, about 30 minutes outside of town that you could go up to. And this is the next picture. And this is taken from the top of one of the runs at a place called Bogus Basin. What you're looking at is Treasure Valley, though you cannot see any of that right there. And the inverted thing is that you would go up skiing and you would climb out of this soup, and it would be 10 or 15 degrees in the valley, and you'd get up to the top of the mountain, and it'd be like 35 degrees. You're taking off your jacket. You're just skiing in a sweater and bibs, and it was absolutely beautiful. But this is inverted how life should be, right? The cold should be up top. The clouds should be up top, not in the valley. And I think when we look at this passage, this Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be looking at a while. It's Jesus' inversion of all these things that we think are normal and what we think we should be pursuing. He said, that's actually not the way that humans are designed to live and to flourish and to experience what is the abundant, rich, blessed life. It's all about perspective, and that's, I saw this next cartoon I really like this, Sue, if you want to... These are two people. <laughs> I just like that. So oftentimes, your perspective is hugely important. And I think in this sermon, Jesus is trying to reorient the perspective of his disciples. He's calling them to live as part of his kingdom, right? He's come and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom is here. Repent and turn because it's here. I, the Messiah, the king have arrived and I'm now asking people to follow me and orient their lives around this new way of the kingdom. But this new way of the kingdom is just radically different, almost a complete inversion of what we value and think of as important. And so 
we pick up the story after Jesus has been baptized. We've seen so far in the gospel that this is the genesis of Jesus. He's the second Adam that's come in that first chapter. In the second chapter, we see the Magi coming, recognizing that this is King Jesus, who is born King of the Jews, and then he comes, and then we see at the baptism, Jesus identifying with us as his people, and then the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So not only is he King Messiah that's there, but he's also the very son of God, and then he begins this public ministry after this time of temptation, and like all of us fail in the temptations, Jesus was not like all of us. He passed all of that perfectly, becoming the perfect human, enduring that temptation, and then he starts his ministry, and what does he do? He proclaims the same message that John the Baptist proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, or has arrived, it's here. And he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and people began to flock to him. As we saw, they flocked from all over the place, bringing those that were spiritually oppressed, bringing those that were physically oppressed, and as a foretaste of the kingdom, he brings healing to all of these people. For all diseases, there is nothing that he could not cure or heal. So this foretaste of this is what life is like in the kingdom. And it says he was teaching this gospel of the kingdom, and then... He's doing all these good deeds, and I think how Matthew's organized it is he's given us a summary. Well, what is the, the teaching of the, the gospel of the kingdom? What is that? And then we have Matthew 5 through 7. So if you've got a red-letter Bible, almost all those letters in that section are red. Why? Because Jesus is teaching that. And in Matthew, there's five main teachings that Jesus gives, and the Sermon on the Mount is the first one. So this gospel was the, the most popular of the gospels in the early church, the gospel according to, to Matthew, because it had all this teaching about Jesus and what his life in us was to look like as we walk through life, what it meant as we talked in Sunday school this morning to be a disciple, to be a learner, to be a follower of Jesus. And we get to the end of the gospel, right? And the Great Commission is there, right? And part of the Great Commission is for us, as we are going through life, to make disciples. Not to make converts. Not to make people who check a box that, yeah, I walked forward one time and, and I'm good and I'm just going to live my life like I want to live my life. But no, to make followers, disciples, learners of Jesus. And then throughout Matthew, this teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, the early church used that and said, wow, these are all the teachings of Jesus. This is kind of like a discipleship manual for those that are wanting to follow Jesus. And so here we have his first major teaching. And in it, Jesus, like I said, flips everything around. And this section uh, the first part is called the Beatitudes, um, and Jeff James did two teachings on this, uh, June 13th and 20th. So I'm not going to go into the details there. You can go back and look at that, you know, and it says, I struggled. What am I going to say about this? Jeff has already said everything. But the reality is there's a lot of meat in here and probably worthy. We could hang out in here for weeks. But go back and listen to those in terms of the nitty-gritty. But this is the Beatitudes, what it means to be blessed. Growing up, I always thought these were the beatitudes, the attitudes that you're supposed to be like. <laughs> and I thought, and thinking it was like, well, that's actually pretty accurate. That is, that is actually what God is calling us to be. And so let's start and we'll read this and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
So a couple things. He's seeing the crowds. The crowds are following him. In Matthew, you get three groups of people, right, that are around Jesus typically. You have the disciples, of which the 12 was the closest group, but there's 70 or 72, and, and then there's groups beyond that. And then you have the crowds, which are those that follow Jesus sometimes. They're astonished by his teaching, but they're not fully in with Jesus. They haven't said, Jesus, we want to follow you, but we're around you. They're not either anti-Jesus or pro-Jesus. They're easily swayed. When Jesus says some hard stuff, he's like, yeah, we're, we're done. We're bailing on this. So they weren't fully committed. And then you have the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and those were the ones typically that were opposed to Jesus. So who is Jesus speaking to here? He says, when he sat down, a typical position for a rabbi would be to teach sitting down. I kind of like that. Maybe we should employ that here. But I move so much, it probably wouldn't work that well. He sat down and his disciples came to him. So these are folks that have already said, Jesus, we're on board with you. We've seen he's called four of those so far in Matthew. So these are the guys that said, Jesus says, come follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they say, we're with you, Jesus. Did they fully understand everything about Jesus? No way. Jesus continued to reveal himself, but these were the people that saw enough in Jesus and said, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to trust you. We want to be part of what you're doing in bringing your kingdom into this world. We believe you're that Messiah that has come. And so they come and gather to him. These are people that have probably already responded to Jesus' message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. They've already done that. They've already repented, and that repent means to turn. In the Old Testament, this word shuv, it was to turn from the direction you're going and to go a different direction. In Greek, it's a word that's metanoia, which is a change of mind or change of thinking. They've come to Jesus and they realize, you know what? We thought we were gods of our own lives and now we recognize Jesus is King Messiah and we're gonna turn and reorient our lives towards him. So these are people that are already on board with Jesus. And in mine, it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, kind of a strange way of saying that's a Semitic idiom for being, he just said something that was important. And he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a reading of God's word. So before we dig into the Beatitudes, and like I said, I'm not going to look in detail at these. I'm going to let you listen to Jeff's couple messages on that. But I wanted to say a few things about how this entire Sermon on the Mount has been looked at in history. And I think there's one book that I read, so there are 12 different interpretive grids that people look at the Sermon on the Mount through. 
And I think most of those are in place because this is something really, really hard to do. And so we want to kind of, oh, if there's a way not to do this, we will do this. And I've grouped them into kind of four main groups. And the first is a group that is not so much from a religious point of view often, but that takes this sermon out and kind of those that view Jesus just as a good moral teacher that says, oh, this is great ethical teaching of Jesus. We're just going to live this out in our lives. There are those that view this as an, kind of if I follow this, I will have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is what I need to do to be acceptable and favored by God. And I don't buy into that for many, many reasons. The first is, who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to his disciples, those that are already on board with him, those that are not saying, this is what I have to do to be accepted by Jesus. And if you look at the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as Jeff was talking about, and you look at that word poor, it means destitute. It means the beggars. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, those that recognize that, hey, there is nothing that I have to offer to God that he's going to be like, wow, Helvi is amazing. Let's bring him into my kingdom. No, it's, man, the guy is a complete mess. And I am blessed when I recognize that. So you look at this and it's like, well, this is kind of paradoxical. Right at the start of the sermon, Jesus is saying basically, you're blessed if you recognize there's no way you're going to do any of this stuff, that you're spiritually poor, that you don't have the resources to put many of these precepts into action. And how we typically do it is we'll take one or two things out, things that we like, and say, yeah, I'm going to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, that's really great until you get some of the other things, until you get to the end of chapter 5 where it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you're like, oh, oh no, no, right, you misunderstand that, that perfect, that word actually means mature. And so you can translate it as mature. And I was like, yeah, totally agree with that. That's legit. My problem is not that word, it's the comparison, as your heavenly Father is. It's like, okay, whether you translate this perfect as in terms of perfect or you translate it mature, the comparison is you need to be as God the Father is. And so you go through this and you recognize if you take Jesus' words seriously, you're going to come to that point where you realize, man, this is just not something that I can do. We'll be in deep trouble if our perfect obedience to all these precepts in the Sermon on the Mount is what we have to do to earn our entrance into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is setting up in this sermon. And kind of the flip side from that is Martin Luther's view, who basically looks at the Sermon on the Mount as the law on steroids, okay? If you think you can keep the Old Testament law, okay, you know, it's like I haven't committed adultery, I haven't murdered anybody, you know, I'm doing pretty good. What Jesus does in the sermon then is he makes the law even harder. It's like, oh, you haven't murdered anybody. Hey, have you ever been really, really ticked off at someone so ticked off that you felt like murder them? Hey, same as you as murder. Hey, I've been committed adultery. Hey, have you ever gone that place in your head with a person of the... Opposite sex or even the same sex that is, ah, well, hmm. 
So Luther looked at this and said, man, there's nobody that's done this. And so what Jesus is doing in this sermon is trying to just crush us to help us to see that, man, we are so far from meeting the standards of God that there's no way we can meet those standards. And in a way, to me, there's truth in that. But to me, the problem is that then oftentimes I say, well, I don't have to worry about this then. It's just once it crushes me and I go to Jesus, then I'm good. I can just live my life because ah, this is impossible anyhow, right? But I don't see that as what Jesus is doing here. These things are indeed impossible if we try and do them in our own strength. But to me, what Luther forgets is that as believers, all of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are not meant to live this life in our own strength and our own power. So if you approach the Sermon on the Mount and say, I'm just going to dial this in, I'm going to do this, then you will end up where Luther wants you to be on your knees before God. But what I want you to do is not stay on your knees, get up and say, you know what, by your help and strength, God, I'm going to live this out. It's that Philippians 2 passage, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, do this stuff. Work it. It's going to be hard. There's going to be trembling involved. For God, as it will, or is it work within you to will and to do according to his pleasure? It's sure to work this stuff out, but not in your own strength, as God is working in and through you to do this kind of stuff. So I don't buy into this is just the law on steroids meant to crush us and then we can kind of forget about it. It's really hard so there was a group of teachers started kind of early 1900s, a guy named John Nelson Darby who took what's called a dispensational view, a radically different view for the church and Israel and he looked at this sermon as just applying to Jews that become Christians in the millennium. So this is so impractical impossible to live out. The only way that this can be lived out is when Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth and the church is going to be raptured out of here. They're not connected. There's a total different destiny for the church and for Israel, whereas I see the church being grafted in to Israel and becoming one people of God. We're all children of Abraham. But this view says basically this teaching is for a future age. It doesn't apply to us. Great. That's a relief. I don't have to do this because it doesn't apply to me. Again, I don't think that is the reality. There's no hints as we go through this sermon that this is meant only for the future. Jesus addresses the Beatitudes start mainly in the third person, but then he moves quickly into the second person, talking to his disciples. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. You all do this. So he's talking to them there and he's not saying, oh, this is for an age yet to come and I'm just kind of outlining it now so you guys have a hint of what's to come later on. So I don't buy into that. Another way of kind of ignoring the teachings here is that this focus is only for the spiritual elite, the elite of the elect, the spiritual special forces, right? Those that rise to the top, the spiritual rescue swimmers, the spiritual triathletes and ultramarathoners, those that have the spiritual wherewithal to really give it their all. But the majority of us Christians, yeah, there's no way we can do this. So we'll just leave those to the disciples. And they categorize, there's a group of Christians that are disciples and then they're the rest of us Christians. The only problem with that is that Matthew views all of us as disciples, right? 
we're to go into the world, and it doesn't say make converts, and then hopefully some of those converts, the really spiritual, passionate ones, will become disciples. No, he says go and make disciples of all nations, and here he's gathering the disciples together. So to me, the focus of this is for every believer. It's not just the spiritually elite. It's not, oh, you know, I'm going to leave this to the religious professionals. They can work that out in their life. But I'm just an ordinary Joe or Jane, and you know, this, this is just impossible for me. Look at what Jesus said. There's stuff in here that I say is going to offend everybody. Jesus gets into everybody's business in this psalm. And he says, oh, yeah, you may not struggle with lust, but hey, how's your anxiety level doing? Are you a person of complete peace, can just walk through life just totally centered on God, and it's just like, wow, I don't have a worry. Stressed about money, thinking too much about that ever. Not, no, I'm just totally good with that all the time. How about your personal relationships? Any relationships that you've got some tension in, and ah, ah, that doesn't apply to me. So Jesus, in this sermon, he's an equal opportunity offender. He offends basically all of us who are human walking through this life because we're walking in a way that is inconsistent with how God wants us to walk. But Jesus wants to move us to that place where we flourish as human beings, being the kind of people that he originally designed it to be. And he's coming to his disciples and he's saying, this, my kingdom is here and I want you to live as citizens of my kingdom. I've been reading through Philippians in both chapter 2 and chapter 4. Paul says basically live as citizens of heaven. You've been called to a new citizenship, a new allegiance, and that's to King Jesus. And King Jesus is now saying, this is what it's like to live in my kingdom. And I love it that this Sermon on the Mount starts with blessing. It doesn't start with commands. These blessings are not commands. He starts as a blessed are the poor in spirit. What the heck does blessed mean even? Or in King James, blessed. You know, you gotta pronounce that E-D on the end. And it's a hard word to translate. Happy is some translations will use, but that seems a little light and fluffy to me. Um, to me, if, if you're blessed, and obviously this is blessed by God, there's that sense of you're approved, and I think, my personal favor is favored. You are favored by God. You are in God's favor if you are like this. And if you look at these qualities, the average Jew at that point in time is going to be scratching their heads and say, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke and the Beatitudes, he just says, blessed are the poor. And there's this connection between being physically poor and spiritually spiritually poor because in that day and age if you had a lot of resources the assumption was man you're blessed spiritually as well thank you bill that the rea- no that's fine <laughs> i love it participate <laughs> i like that but the reality is that's like oh man that guy's look at everything that's happened in his life or in her life wow they are really blessed by god because they've got all this stuff And then Jesus says some crazy stuff to his disciples, and it's like, wow, it's next to impossible for the rich to get into heaven. And his disciples are like, what in the world? Who can get into heaven then? Why are they saying it like that? Because their assumption is if you're rich, you're tight and close with God. And so Jesus comes here and he says, that's the poor in spirit. It's not the religious elite. It's those that recognize, man, I'm nothing. 
It's, I don't have anything to give to God. I'm not the one that's going to be selected to, to preach the passage in synagogue. It's not going to be me. I'm, I'm a mess. I don't have anything spiritually to offer to God. And Jesus starts out this, and he uses the present tense here. There's is the kingdom of heaven. You're part of the kingdom of heaven because you recognize that you don't belong in the kingdom of heaven. The paradox is full in this. It's like those that are accepted into the kingdom are those that recognize, man, I don't deserve to be in this kingdom at all. I think it was W.C. Fields that said, I'd never join a club that had standards so low that they would accept me. (laughs) That's kind of the idea. That the reality is that if you have this attitude like, I I don't have it all together. I so need God. He says, you're blessed. You're favored by God. To me, that is a huge flip of orientation. It's not the people that have all their ducks in a row spiritually that God says are citizens of my kingdom. But it's those that recognize, man, my spiritual ducks, they're waddling all over the place. I can't even get these things in the same room, let alone in line. And he says, there, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes, blessed are those who mourn. And to me, this is the emotional component of being poor in spirit. You recognize, man, there's so many ways that my sin, that my rebellion has spilled over and hurt myself and hurt other people. And I look at this world and I see the havoc that sin brings into this world and it grieves my heart. It's those that are going to be comforted. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The one book that I said I would want to write someday is on the humility or the gentleness of God. Because every systematic theology I've looked at does not have that as one of the qualities of God. Omniscience, omnipotence, all that kind of, but nothing on the humility or the gentleness of God. And the Iron Man, I think Chet found this book, but a guy named Ortberg, which I think I knew his dad teaching, but he's got a book, Gentle and Lowly. The only time that Jesus ever describes his heart, and when the Bible uses heart, it's the whole inner personality. Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly. And the world looks, as it's not the meek that inherit the earth. No, it's the powerful. It's the ones that are assertive, who grab life by the horns and just go for it, who step on whatever and whoever they need to step on to get ahead in life. They are the ones that are going to make it. They're the ones that are going to inherit the world. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's, it's the total opposite. It's the total opposite. It's when you are willing to defer your position to somebody else. Like John the Baptist to say, let him increase. I'm okay with decreasing. Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. That's the ones that Jesus says inherit the world. That's crazy, isn't it? Then he goes on and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this to me is probably the most encouraging of these Beatitudes. 
So this is a dumb question. But if you hunger and thirst for something, do you have that? If you're really, really hungry, do you have, have you already been given like a big meal already in front of you? And you, No, it's not present yet. So to me, as I look at my life and I look at just how far I have to go and just how impatient and angry and frustrated I can get, even with little things that go wrong in my life, and then Jesus says, no, it's, it's not arriving at that space, but it's the longing for that that makes you ultimately satisfied in me. And I love that. Because I don't know if you're like me, you look at your life and you look at the standard of Jesus and you, man, you just go, I'm not there. But God, I so want to be there, but, but I'm not there. It's Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, the very thing that I shouldn't do is the thing that I do, the thing that I should be doing, I don't do. Yes, how am I going to, it's like, yeah. It's that recognition that there's still miles to go before we sleep, Right? It's Paul in Philippians 3 that says, you know what, I'm not there yet, but what I do is I press on. I move forward. I want to be there. And so to me, this is a beautiful beatitude. This is, you know, it's not the arrivers that have the blessing of God, the favor of God, but it's those that have that desire to want to be there. This is where I want to be, God. And he looks on that and says, that's wonderful. You're blessed. You're favored, you're approved by me, even though you've not yet fully arrived. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When you recognize your poverty of spirit and when you recognize that you don't deserve anything, it just should produce in us this set by, wow, God's given me so much that I don't deserve. Let me extend some of that grace your way as well. Those that are compassionate, towards others. Jesus often looked on the crowds and he looked on the crowds not with disdain, not saying, oh, these people are just such knuckleheads. I wish they'd get it together. They've put so much sin in their life. They're awful. I'm just going to zap them all right now because they tick me off. No, he looks out at them with what? Compassion. Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of our God. Not a God of the hammer, but a God that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, seeing the face of God is called theosis and being in the presence of God and coming so close to God that you're like God. That's, that, that's the ultimate. John talks about that when we see him, we shall be like him. So this desire to, to see God, to know God, it's a passion that God blesses, the pure in heart. And I don't think this can mean the perfect in heart because he's just said before that it's the, the poor in spirit. So I think this is just a sincere heart. And notice it's pure in heart. And later on in the sermon, Jesus is going to fire some pretty harsh salvos against the religious establishment that were doing all their stuff not to be pure in heart, but to be pure on the outside. So everybody looked at them and said, wow, they're the pure ones. Look at how they pray. Look at how they give. Wow, look at them fasting. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, this inward purity, this longing to be like God and to see God as he really is. 
And then blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As Jeff mentioned, this is kind of the the pinnacle of these beatitudes. To be a son of God, to be a son of something is to have the characteristics of that person. And it's like, if you're a peacemaker, this is one of God's highest qualities of being a reconciler, right? We've been reconciled to God. Wow. How? Through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, we've been reconciled to God, therefore we can offer reconciliation to others. So this peacemaking, I think first and foremost is peace between humans and God, but then my call is to bring peace between other people. Again, I've been reading through Philippians, and at the end, and one of my teachers said, this may be the reason that this book was written. Paul calls out Yodia and Syntyche and says, get along, ladies. Imagine being in the service in Philippi. You're reading, oh, we got a letter from Paul. That's great. And then all of a sudden, it's reading through, it's like, Chris Kelly, Thomas Moley, you guys get along. <laughs> and Syntychus, you make sure that they get along. It's like, this reconciliation is really, really important to God. And later on, he's going to talk about, man, you're in church, you're at the altar, and there you recognize that your brother or sister's got something against you. You first leave, and you go be reconciled, and then you come back, because I don't want any of this worship that's hypocritical if there's not right relationships in your life. Blessed are the peacemakers favored by God. They should be called sons of God. Then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice this is persecuted for a reason, for righteousness sake. It's not persecuted because you're doing things not in the way God has called you to do things, that you're being obnoxious, that we're supposed to give an answer with gentleness and respect, not to scream at people with our veins bulging out of our necks, thinking somehow that's going to bring them into the kingdom. And then when we're persecuted, come back together and say, oh, people don't like us. Yeah, you're screaming at them. There's a reason for that. But to recognize that when you stand for what is right, simply standing for that in our culture now is going to bring persecution. And I always used to think of persecution, and we do this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, just of those that are being tortured or imprisoned. But look what Jesus says, elaborating on this last beatitude. He says, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Luke adds another one. They exclude you. You ever been in a conversation with someone, and they don't yet know you're a believer, and yeah, you're just clicking, things are going along, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes up. And then it just gets really weird. And they begin to think of you as that kind of person. And they begin to assume all sorts of things about you, that you're a hater, that you're bigoted, that you're racist, all this kind of stuff because you're taking a particular stand that Scripture calls us to take or you're saying, man, I really love Jesus and I think he's awesome. And I say, oh, ah, should we invite Helvie to the party? No, he's one of those Jesus freaks. And to me, that's part of persecution as well where they falsely say all sorts of stuff about you. 
and to recognize if you're going to stand with Jesus and for Jesus' truth, there's going to be pushback that you get in our culture. It's just going to happen. And if you're so worried about offending somebody out there, you're never going to speak up for Jesus. You're just not. He's not going to be popular with a whole lot of people. But with some people, if you stand for him, they're going to say, man, this is amazing. I want to know this Jesus too. But if we think we can get to that without having a lot of people push back against us and unfollow us and say, I don't like that. Again, you can be as gracious and kind in how you articulate stuff as possible and you will still oftentimes be hated and ridiculed just because you take a stand that Jesus is calling you to take. Or you just say, I love Jesus and I think he is the way, the truth, and the life and I want you to know him. And Jesus says this crazy thing, rejoice and be glad. And Luke, it says, leap for joy. Yes! These people hate me. This is great. Why? None of these things are really great things, right? To be poor in spirit, to mourn, you know, to be persecuted. It's not that that we rejoice in. It's what's to come. And yes, there's a present reality. And as we look at the kingdom of God, there's always this now and not yet. If you look at the first and last Beatitudes, the kingdom of heaven is these people's right now. It's the present tense, but everything else is future. They shall be comforted. They shall be satisfied. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you shall be satisfied. Right now? No, it's future. Maybe you'll get some of that right now, but I love that word satisfied. It was used of animals being fattened up, right? So it's like, you're going to be stuffed with righteousness someday. You're not there yet, but man, do you long? I want to be stuffed with righteousness because right now, and pretty much of a anemic of righteousness, right? But one day I want to be stuffed. It's my 600-pound life of righteousness, right? That's that's where I want to be. And that's not that. That's a bad image, but that is what is coming for us. There's a fullness of being in the kingdom of God and a blessing that comes for all these crazy things that Jesus has just inverted this whole thing and said, this is the kind of people that I welcome into my kingdom. And I don't know where you are this morning. And as I look at these, you know, to me, who do they paint the most clear picture of? It's Jesus. Poor in spirit, who is willing to to humble himself Take on my sin in himself so that I could become rich. Those who mourn, a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, who looked over Jerusalem weeping and said, man, I want to gather you, but you're just not willing. Grieving over what sin caused in death in this world as his friend Lazarus died and that was impacting those that loved Lazarus as well. Meek, not saying, I am here, I will establish my kingdom in the way that you think human kings should be established. He comes in humility to a poor teenage couple not from an influential family and begins to influence the world by calling people like you and me to be part of his team and you're going, that's just not the way to build a kingdom, Jesus. And he says, I beg to differ. He doesn't throw his weight around. He's gentle with us. When we sin and when we rebel and when we push him away, even for years as in my life, he doesn't come with the thumb and just say, you're done. 
but he's gracious, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to that place of turning and responding to him. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus so often looked at others with mercy and compassion, not with condemnation. Yes, there is a day that he is coming to judge the world, but now is the day of salvation, that day that his offer of mercy stands to anybody who will repent and acknowledge that they're needy, that they come as a beggar, they don't have anything spiritually to offer, they're just like, I'm a mess. And Jesus says, man, my kingdom is for people like you. Come, let me transform you from the inside out. He's merciful. Who of all people was pure in heart like Jesus? No guile. What you see is what you get. How many of us can ask somebody, who, who of you accuses me of any, doing anything wrong? <laughs> Jesus could say that to his enemies. And they, got, uh, they had nothing to say. Complete purity of heart. The ultimate peacemaker that made peace between God and us and enables us to have peace one to another. persecuted, who had done nothing wrong, yet was executed because he was willing to be executed in my place, persecuted to bring me peace. How can you not love someone like that? So if you're here this morning and you feel spiritually impoverished, if you sometimes hate where you are with a passion and you want to be so different and you grieve over that and say, this is what I want to be, but I'm not. And you're hungering and thirsting for something different, but you're not there yet. Jesus says to you, blessed, favored. You're the kind of people that I want to be in my kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't deserve any of your blessing. Yet you are so merciful. And you pour it out on us. Lord, for those of us who know you, help us to invert our values. Help us to have a change of mind, a change of thinking about what we think is significant and what leads to the blessed life, the happy life, the good life, and to listen to you and what you've said leads to that state. Lord, there's times, oftentimes, where we don't want it. Lord, in that, let us recognize our spiritual poverty and bring us to that point where we will want to want what you want us to want. Lord, we can't change our hearts. Only you can do that. But Lord, thank you that you promised to do that for those of us who have turned to you. So change us, Lord, from the inside out. Help us to mourn over our sins. Help us to have a humility towards others. Lord, give us a hunger and thirst to do what you want us to do. Give us compassionate hearts towards those that are not there yet, just like us. 
Lord, develop that sincerity and purity of our own hearts. Lord, help us to be people that lead others to peace, first and foremost with you and then with one another. And Lord, give us the wherewithal to stay true to you even when we get pushed back and people ridicule us or exclude us because we're yours. Lord, we recognize in this the paradox that we can't push ourselves into that place, but we need you to bring us there. So we humbly come before you and just ask you to do that work in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, that you're just so, so different than what we are. That your ways aren't our ways, but your ways are the best ways. So often we forget that. Help us regularly to remember that. Fill us with your spirit. Use us for your glory. As we seek to be learners, as well as helping others to learn of you. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.